All right, here we are, Hebrews, the glorious Jesus. This is lesson number seven in this series. The title of this particular lesson is Jesus Greater Than Aaron. And we're in the third part of this particular uh, title. If you're in the book of uh, Hebrews, if you're following along uh, in your Bibles, uh, you'll be at chapter number seven. Okay, so for the last three chapters, the author of Hebrews has been demonstrating how Jesus as high priest is superior to the Aaronic line of high priests in Judaism. Now the idea was that formerly under the Mosaic system, the Jews, their hope was based on the fact that their priest could go before God and intervene on their behalf. In other words, they could give thanks, they could appeal for forgiveness, they could offer praise on behalf of the Jewish people. So the author of Hebrews makes the argument that Christians have a better hope because they have a better type of high priest in Jesus Christ. And now he explains that Jesus is in the mold and character of a different kind of high priest. Okay? Not like the Aaronic, you know, not like Aaron's high priests who died and needed a continued lineage, you know, generation after generation to carry on their work, but rather like a character in the Old Testament called Melchizedek, who was an eternal type and figure in the Old Testament. And so in this particular chapter, the author will elaborate on the person of Melchizedek and Jesus' relationship to him. Now I want you to remember that the author has said that these ideas you know, about Melchizedek and Jesus' relationship to him and so on and so forth, this is, the, this is the meat of the word, not the milk of the word. These are the complex ideas contained in the word and so his readers had to focus and, and to kind of stay with him. And I say the same thing to those of you who are following this lesson, not only here in class, but those who are watching online or who might see this uh, on our website later on. You have to kind of stay focused because the ideas, not all of them are easy to grasp, okay? So uh, let's take a look at the background of Melchizedek. First of all, looking at uh, the relationship between Abraham and Melchizedek because that's where he appears in the history of the Bible. So before we look at Jesus' relationship with Melchizedek, we need to review the passage that refers to this actual person in the Old Testament. So we go to Genesis chapter 14, that's where it's found, and we read the relationship between Abraham and Melchizedek. Uh, it begins uh, in this way, it says, Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food supply and departed. They also took Lot, Abraham's nephew, and his possessions and departed, for he was living in Sodom. And so um, what we're reading here, we're kind of entering into a, just a certain point in history. What we're reading about is that there is a local war between rival kings and uh, 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 where, where Abraham uh, and Lot live in that general area. There, there's a civil war that's going on between uh, several kings. Uh, and uh, during this war, as it is mentioned here, uh, Lot and his family is taken captive uh, in the middle of all of this and carried off uh, by, one of these, uh, by one of these kings. That's where we enter into the story. So let's keep reading verse 13. It says, Then a fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew. Now he was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, uh, brother of Eschol and brother of Aner. And these were allies with Abram. 
When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he led out his trained men, born in his house, 318, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. He brought back all the goods and also brought back his relative Lot with his possessions and also the women and the people. Then after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tenth of all. So Abraham goes out and defeats the attackers, and he saves his nephew Lot and the family. And this is where Melchizedek enters in. Melchizedek, one of the local kings, blesses Abraham and receives from him a tenth of the spoils taken in battle as tribute. Now, nothing is ever mentioned of Melchizedek's family or genealogy or his work or his death. You know, he just kind of appears right here. He appears only here and he is not seen again. Now there's some reference to him. He's mentioned in Psalm 110 verse 4 and of course in Hebrews 7, but you don't see him appearing anywhere else in the, in the history uh, of the Jews uh, um, recorded in the Old Testament. So what do we know about Melchizedek? Well, we know that he was the uh, king of Salem, which, is, uh, which was Jerusalem, eventually became Jerusalem. Uh, he used the same word for God that Abraham used, and that is God Most High, or Jehovah. Uh, it says that uh, he was a priest of God Most High. I mean, he's referred to that as that by Moses, who is the writer of uh, Genesis. Also, he takes the initiative to bless Abraham, and Abraham receives the blessing. And he speaks the word, in other words, he prophesies uh, concerning Abraham. And then, significantly, Melchizedek receives a tithe, a tenth, a portion of the spoils are given uh, to this individual. Now, you have to remember that all of this was done long before, some four or five hundred years, before Moses had actually given the law and installed the sacrificial system and the priesthood and all that stuff. All of this happened you know, centuries before. All right, so now let's go to Hebrews and let's take a look at the relationship <clears throat> that the author of Hebrews says um, that Melchizedek and Jesus have together. And that would be in chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. It says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is, king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains priest perpetually. So here the author reviews who Melchizedek was. 
So he gives a, a brief review of events you know, from Genesis 14, what we just read. He also gives the meaning of Melchizedek's name. Uh, his name means king of righteousness. Uh, Salem, as I mentioned before, is Jerusalem geographically, but the word Salem means peace. Uh, the author also focuses on the fact that nothing of his genealogy is mentioned and emphasizes that this is significant. Now the author is suggesting with these opening statements that Melchizedek was a type. Okay, remember we, we talked about type like a preview? That Melchizedek was a type of the Messiah King that would ultimately come. All right? And this is demonstrated by several things. His name, for example. His name is uh, uh, King of Righteousness, or My King is Righteous. Uh, his position, very important. He was both king and priest. He wasn't just a king, but he was also a priest, because it says a priest of the Most High God. Remember that, it's an important idea. Thirdly, his work towards Abraham, blessing Abraham, receiving a, a, a portion from Abraham, uh, prophesying to Abraham, and of course, his genealogy. The suggestion is his genealogy is endless. There's no mention of his mother, there's no mention of his death recorded. So the idea is his genealogy is endless. Now, uh, we need to realize that Melchizedek was made like the Son of God. Okay? Not that Jesus was like Melchizedek, it was rather that Melchizedek was like Jesus and he appeared in history as a type that early on would embody the qualities possessed by the Messiah when the Messiah would finally arrive. So remember we're talking about billboarding and types and previews. So Melchizedek is a type and a preview of what the Messiah would be like when He would come. He was a model to demonstrate what to look for when the real thing appeared. This is what the Hebrew writer is, is arguing, is presenting here. So let's keep reading um, in verse four. <clears throat> he says, now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In this case, mortal men receive tithes. But in that case, one receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. And, so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Okay, that's, that's a big chunk here. So what he's doing here is he demonstrates Melchizedek's greatness in comparison to Levi and the priestly line by showing several things. Okay? First of all, uh, the greater receives the blessings and receives the tithe. So as far as the Jews were concerned, Abraham, you know, the father, he was the father of the, of the nation. right? He was a great Old Testament uh, patriarch. He was the patriarch. All right? And yet, uh, 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 Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. 
and Melchizedek gave a blessing to Abraham. So he, you know, if we're looking for greatness, the author here is saying, if you compare Abraham and Melchizedek, you know, they were contemporaries, Melchizedek is the greater one. Also, as the patriarch through whom the Levitical priesthood came, Abraham was the father of all the priests, right? Because the, the tribe of Levi ultimately came through Abraham and through the tribe of Levi you got Aaron and Aaron was the high priest and, and the priesthood was from that particular family, right? But the source was Abraham. And so his point is, well, the source was actually paying, the source of all the priesthood was actually paying tithes to Melchizedek. And so his argument is, uh, in a way, even the priests, his descendants, paid tithes to Melchizedek long before they were even born. And so Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, and in a way, so do all of his descendants, including Aaron and all the Levitical priests. So when comparing the Levitical priesthood to Melchizedek, what do we see? Well, Melchizedek blessed the father of the Levites, the one who had the promises. Remember what I said? The superior is always the one who blesses the inferior. Okay? Um, we also know that Melchizedek received tithes from Abraham who gave voluntarily, not like the Levites who collected tithes as required by the law. And so he had an inherent greatness, Melchizedek, uh, Melchizedek did. Uh, the Levites, did, you, know, you didn't pay the tithes to the Levites because of who they were. You paid tithes to the Levites because of the law. They merely collected the tithes. But Melchizedek, Abraham paid him a tithe because of who he was. You see what I'm saying? His inherent greatness. And so Melchizedek's priesthood was an eternal nature was of an eternal nature. As a man, of course, he died. But scripture, by not recording his genealogy or his death, symbolically, all right, symbolically lifts his ministry as being of an eternal nature. We're not saying that he was a divine being. They're just saying because he only appears and has no genealogy, no mention of mother or father, no mention of birth or death, the imagery, okay, the, symb the symbolism here is that he is of a, an eternal uh, nature. Okay? Um, so the author is going to great pains here to show that uh, uh, there are two types of priesthood, and that's the bottom line. You know, if you, I, you know, if you've you know, kind of strayed away from the ideas that we're talking about here, he, he's arguing there's two kinds of priests here. All right? One of them, embodied by Aaron, uh, that served the Jews throughout the Old, Testa throughout the Old Test uh, Testament period, um, prepared the people for the arrival of the Messiah. And so the Aaronic priesthood was temporary, it was earthly, it was sinful in the sense that it was manned by ordinary men, right? Aaron was a sinner like the rest of us. And it was also under the law. They served according to the law given to them by God. So that was one type of priesthood. All right? Then there's another type of priesthood, and the other type of priesthood is embodied not by Aaron, but by Melchizedek, that served as a type to point to Christ. And his type of priesthood was eternal, it was heavenly, it was righteous, and it was not under the law. Okay? Uh, 
And so the conclusion is that it was, you know, it was greater. Which priesthood do you want serving you? Do you want the priesthood that's temporary, earthy, and so on and so forth? Or do you want the priesthood that is eternal, heavenly, righteous, not under the law? You know, which priesthood would you prefer uh, serving your needs? Okay. So let's uh, continue in the, in, the, in the passage. So he says, now if perfection was through Le the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. So he summarizes his case here. If perfection, meaning salvation and a true relationship with God and a clear conscience and so on and so forth, if this kind of perfection could be achieved through the Levitical sacrificial priestly system and the law upon which it was based, then there would be no need to change the type of priests or anything. Just carry on with, you know, carry on with what you have. We'd have it to this day. Now, if perfection is not through Aaron, then we need to change to another type of priest and another type of system. Because if the Aaronic line goes, so does the system of law upon which it is based also go. So you've got the, 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 the priesthood according to Aaron and what it is based upon, the law. So if, we don't, if, the, if, the, if the priesthood according to Aaron can't perfect us and we have to remove it, well, we, also have to, we also have to remove what it's based on. We need, something, we need something new. So we go to verse 13. He says, For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning the priests. And so here the author is going to you know, answer a normal argument uh, you know, that will come back. You know, if you're saying, hey, we have to eliminate this priesthood and replace it with another type, they're going to say, well, you know, this Jesus, you want to replace him with this Jesus. He doesn't come from the tribe of, uh, of Levi. See what I'm saying? So he admits that as far as Jesus is concerned, he could have never served as a Jewish high priest because the law clearly taught that the only descendants, only the descendants of Levi, for example, could serve in this capacity. And Jesus was descended from the tribe of Judah. So you know, he wouldn't be allowed to serve simply based on the tribe that he was from. So let's just keep reading the argument. So he says, and, and this is clearer still, if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life, for it is attested of him, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. All right? So the author shows that Jesus is not trying to be a priest according to Aaron. He is a priest after another type, the type embodied by Melchizedek, a type whose features are different than Aaron, mainly a type of priest that is eternal in nature, not earthly or perishable like Aaron and his descendants. Okay? So he quotes Psalm 110 to show that Jesus' priesthood is based on the power of indestructible life, not law, 
as Aaron's priesthood was. And this feature was prophesied by King David long before. You see what I'm saying? He says we have to get rid of the priesthood. And if we get rid of the priesthood, we have to get rid of, we have to change what the priesthood was based on. It was based on the law. And he says Jesus is not a priest after the line of Aaron because the line of Aaron you know, was mandated by the law. Well, you know, we've, we've removed that. Jesus is mandated by the power of life. You see what I'm saying? His priesthood is based not on the law, his priesthood is based on the power of indestructible life. In other words, his priesthood is based on divinity, not law. Okay? So let's, let's, uh, let's um, uh, keep reading. Verse 18, he says, For on the one hand there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of his weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. So the result of this change of priesthood from Aaronic type to Melchizedek type is that the basis of each is changed also. Aaron was based on law. Melchizedek based on the power of eternal life. And so the result is that there will be results. See his argument is that you, know, you had Aaron based on the law and, 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 and the history of that and what did it accomplish? Well it didn't accomplish a thing. It didn't accomplish a thing as far as making people perfect as far as giving them the life of God. Uh, basically the, the, the purpose of the law was to remind people that they were sinners, actually that they were imperfect. Okay? So um, he says now with this new uh, priesthood, the result is, well, there are going to be results. All right? uh, the law and its priesthood could never uh, uh, resurrect men from the dead, could not clear their consciences, could not draw men near to God. It only reminded them of sin and death. However, Jesus and the power of life that He brings and the basis upon, his, uh, the basis upon which His priesthood is, is, is uh, situated can accomplish all of these things. And as our high priest, He replaces the law of sin and death with the power of life and freedom. Okay, that's a lot of words here, but what I'm saying is you know, the, the priesthood of Aaron based on the law did not accomplish perfection. So the author says, but the priesthood of Jesus Christ, a priesthood like Melchizedek's, based on the power of eternal life, this will produce results. What results? It'll produce perfection in the people. Perfection in the sense that it will give them forgiveness of sins, make them sons of God, and promise them eternal life. That's the power that this priesthood will give to the people it serves. So he continues arguing, verse 20 says, And inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath through the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever so much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. In addition to this power, His followers have the guarantee of salvation. Why? Because God has sworn that Jesus will accomplish all of this as high priest and will accomplish it forever. Now the Old Testament high priests, they did not have God or themselves, you know, they didn't take any oaths. 
you know, when, when Aaron became priest and his sons and descendants, before there were certain ceremonies that they had to go through in order to become a priest, right? But there was no part of any ceremony where they took an oath. Now the author is saying, but Jesus, He takes an oath. Why, you know, I'm going to digress here. Why didn't He take an oath? Well, He could not accomplish anything. He couldn't promise that you know, he, the people would be healed, the people's sins would all be forgiven, the people would have the spirit, the people would have eternal. You know, he couldn't promise anything, so there's no purpose for him to take an oath. But Jesus, he's saying you know, uh, this new priesthood in Jesus, a priesthood that's like the priesthood of Melchizedek based on the power of eternal life, uh, he's going to have results. He's promising results and he's He's taking an oath uh, to secure and confirm that promise uh, to men. So in addition to this power, um, His followers have the guarantee of salvation because God has sworn that Jesus will accomplish all of these things. As I say, the Old Testament high priest did not have God or themselves take any oath, but Jesus is in place based on power and on an oath. You understand what I'm saying? In other words, he has his position based on the power of eternal life, indestructible life. That's what powers his high priestly ministry. And in addition to that, God swears that he will accomplish as high priest all of the things that are set before him. Talk about, uh, we talked about oaths uh, last week, remember? Um, a, a guarantee from God to men about the certainty of His promises. So we have a guarantee from God about the certainty of the promises made by Jesus, our high priest. So let's keep reading 23. He says, the former priests on the one hand existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus on the other hand, because He continues forever, holds His priesthood permanently. Therefore He is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. So uh, He demonstrates the important features of Jesus' eternal priesthood. And the important feature is that He is always and will always be there to make intercession for those who believe in Him and who come to God through Him. That's important. You know, the Levitical priesthood had you know, they had highs and they had lows throughout their history, scattered during times they were scattered, you know, geographically they were scattered during times of persecution. Uh, the priesthood suffered lapses in commitment and service caused by sinfulness. Uh, but the priesthood of Christ will have no interruption like this. The priesthood of Christ, the writer says, is steadily interceding for the saints every day, all day long, forever. Uh, it's the reason why sinful men can have eternal life, because an eternal priest intercedes eternally for them, something that the Levitical priesthood could not do and never claimed to be able to do. Okay? Verse 26 to 28, he makes a final comparison and review of the facts with a look or, or, or a hook rather and a bridge to his next section in this book. So let's read verse 26. He says, for it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. So you know, when comparing the two, uh, the two priesthoods, 
it becomes evident that Jesus is exactly the kind of high priest that we need, that they needed, and of course that we need today. Holy, meaning He was separated unto God. Uh, he was innocent and undefiled and separate from sinners. In other words, He was a high priest with no sin. Uh, and also exalted, well, He was with God in heaven. He doesn't serve an earthly, in an earthly tabernacle, an earthly building. He serves at the true altar. He serves at the true uh, uh, position uh, in heaven before God on our behalf. So this is the kind of high priest we really need to act on our behalf. And Jesus is like this. In other words, we need this kind of high priest to get the job done, the job of perfecting us. Verse 27, he says, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. So here, uh, he introduces the idea that Christ offered Himself as sacrifice. There's the hook word. There's the billboard. What's, what's coming next? What is He going to talk about next? Well, now He's, gonna, you know, now he's been talking about Jesus, you know, the high priest, and how He is superior to the Jewish high priest. Well, next He's going to be talking about the sacrifice that Jesus offers and how the sacrifice He offers is superior to the sacrifices that the Levitical priests offered. And so he's saying sinful men offered countless dead animals as sacrifice for sin, but our high priest offered his own perfect life once for all time for all sin. So this is an important point. Um, and the point here is that this was possible because Jesus did not have to offer sacrifice for his own sins first as the Levitical priests did. You know, they were sinners, so they had to first offer sacrifice for their sins and then they would offer sacrifice for the sins of the people. He had only one life, and because it was a sinless life, He could offer it for others. Because it was an eternal life, it covered the sins of everyone from beginning to the end of time. So His life had two qualities. It was sinless, therefore it was worthy to be offered for the sins of others. And uh, he, it was divine. He had a divine nature, and because of his divine nature, his sacrifice, the inherent quality or value of it was much greater than dead animals. Even if a human being offered his life, that human being would, would, you know, would be a, a sinful life, but he offers a sinless life wrapped in a divine nature. So it's worthy to be offered for the sins of other people and it's powerful enough to wash away the sins or to pay for the moral debt or to atone for, any way you want to say that, the, the, the debts or the sins of everyone. Okay? Um, uh, in verse 28, uh, he says, For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. So a final comment on the difference between the two. The law given by Moses established the Aaronic priesthood and the sacrificial system. It was temporary, it was not meant to save, but rather to remind and prepare and people you know, for the coming of Christ, and it was served by weak and sinful men. On the other hand, you have God's word, confirmed by an oath, later revealed the priesthood of Christ, as seen in Melchizedek, spoken of by David, fulfilled by Jesus. 
So the author's unspoken conclusion asks his readers, do you really want to abandon this effective eternal high priest for the former sinful and temporal high priest? You know, that question, he doesn't say it, but it's kind of dangling there. Which, which high priest do you want you know, uh, going before God on your behalf? So let's kind of summarize here. Uh, as I say, the meat of the word, not the milk of the word. So let's do a summary here and like kind of highlight the, really the, the, the main ideas. First of all, the author gives details concerning Melchizedek, who is a type or a model for the kind of high priest needed by men to complete their salvation and demonstrates how Jesus fulfills this type. The author, you know, he talks about Melchizedek and what type of priest he was, and then he shows how Jesus you know, is the fulfillment of this type. He's righteous without sin. He's eternal without, without death. Secondly, he introduces two new ideas, two important changes. The first, if the priesthood changes, he says, so does its base. So you have Aaron you know, based on the law, you have Melchizedek based on the power of life. Um, and then he says, um, not only does you know, the, uh, the, uh, the priesthood change, but the nature of the sacrifice also changes. Uh, in, in, in the Aaronic priesthood, animals and produce were offered. In the priesthood embodied by, by Melchizedek and fulfilled by Jesus, the life of the high priest is what is offered to God. So these ideas are introduced to form a bridge to the next section where the system of law and sacrifice will be examined. So this exhortation was meant to encourage them actually. I mean, it was really focused on Jews, right? If you weren't a Jew, none of this would make sense to you. It's one of the reasons why even in this class, you know, we have to go back and explain some background material, so on and so forth, because we're not, you know, this is not something that we're concerned about. You know, about the, you know, we, we, we're not Jews. We never were, you know, 100% of us here, none of us were, were, were Jews. So this exhortation was meant to encourage these Jews, to encourage them to keep their trust for salvation in Jesus because he was superior as a high priest to, than Aaron, the, the old high priest. Now, as I say, none of us are in danger of returning to the Aaronic priesthood for salvation. So my question is, Where's our encouragement? Why have we you know, kind of you know, struggled through these difficult passages here to understand this? Well, the thing that we share in common with them is the sense of sin and the, the, the fear of judgment. They were tempted to find someone else to guarantee their salvation, and that someone else was you know, the, the, the Levitical priesthood. We also have our periods of doubt and fear. Um, the message is, of Hebrews is, is clear. Jesus is always there for you, right? Therefore, He is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. That part right there, that's timeless. They understood this, of course, through the lens of being Jews and Jesus a better high priest and so on and so forth. Today, we look at this through the lens of Jesus is the one who is always there for us. Uh, don't ever let sin and failure or any kind of discouragement you know, get, get us down because Jesus is always there to intercede for us with the Father. 
We have someone before God interceding for us day and night. We, we shouldn't be discouraged, we shouldn't be afraid, we shouldn't doubt. Um, the author is saying here, he is always and will always be there to intervene for us because of our weaknesses, because of our failures, and because of our sins. This is a very encouraging uh, idea for uh, human beings, weak and sinful human beings, uh, regardless of the generation that they live in. Okay, so we're going to stop right here, take a deep breath, and continue um, with uh, these ideas in Hebrews in our next lesson. I thank you uh, for your attention.